All right, we are live, ladies and gentlemen, left-wing billionaire and all-around great guy. George Soros is reportedly on the verge of taking a controlling interest of the second-largest radio broadcasting company in the United States. This move is leaving many concerned that Soros is planning to exert substantial influence on important broadcast markets in the months leading up to the 2024 election. We're going to be talking about this and oh so much more on episode 437 of the In the Tank podcast. Yeah. All right. Welcome to the In the Tank podcast. As always, I'm your host, Donald Kendall. Joining me today, I've got Jim Lakely, VP of the Heartland Institute. How are you doing today, good sir? I'm doing all right. Uh, yeah, glad to be on the podcast. We are short one person today, Chris Talgo. I'll just spoil it right now. It's not going to be on the show because he's actually doing a radio interview elsewhere. So it's just going to be me, Donnie, and who else, oh. Donnie? And we've got Justin Haskins, director of the Socialism Research Center, and sporting a beard. What's going on, good sir? I'm doing. I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Uh, it's been a busy few weeks. Um, mainly just growing out the beard. It's a lot of work to do that, <laughs> obviously. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I'm glad. Most people take vacations. They travel. Whatever. I take vacations just for facial hair. So that's, that's right. how committed I am. Um, so yeah, so I'm trying, I'm trying it on what I like to do. Most people don't know this, but this is actually like a life philosophy that I have Mm. is I'm a big believer that you should not lock yourself in to one kind of facial hair situation. Okay. So, so once you are a beard person, Mm. Donnie, you know, this, Mm -hmm. you can't just shave it all off like tomorrow and everyone's going to think it's super weird. Right. And the same thing is true if you're not a beard person like Jim. Right. Because then if Jim just grew like a full beard tomorrow, like everyone would be like, what the hell? Like, that's weird. <laughs> so in people with mustaches, definitely they, they're locked into that mustache forever. And so my philosophy is I just I'm, I'm in a cycle. I grow oh. the beard out, I shave it down to nothing. I grow it back yeah, out again. I, and that way no one knows. And they can't lock me into a box. See, no, see, I, I've given up the uh, the potential of of shaving this beard off ever since i had kids i'm pretty sure that they would think i'm a stranger yeah. and run away from exactly if, uh, exactly, <laughs> exactly, right. exactly right exactly right yeah, uh, before we... I'm, I'm gen x and in the 90s of course like everybody else i had a nice goatee going and uh oh. so there are pictures of oh, me wow. out there somewhere in yeah, the and into the early 2000s let's be real let's be real yeah <laughs> Before we get going, audio listeners that are probably catching the show on a Friday or later, first off, why don't you leave a review for us on iTunes? That'd be greatly appreciated. You could also join us a day earlier on Thursdays at noon central time where we are. Uh, um, yeah, noon central time where we are live streaming on Facebook and YouTube and X and Rumble. And you could join the conversation, throw your comments and questions in the chat. 
Maybe we'll show your comments on the screen. Maybe we'll address your questions on the fly. You can support the show with that super chat functionality, which we have enabled. If you want to guarantee your comment or question is read on the air, or you can support the show just by uh, spending a couple of seconds, not dollars, by just hitting that like button, sharing this content, subscribing if you haven't already, or just leaving a comment under the video. All helps break through those big tech algorithms that prevent content like this from being shown to more people. But, uh... Gentlemen, we've uh, we've got a few things to talk about on this podcast, but one of the things that this is a little outside the normal topic area that we usually get to on the show, um, but we do talk about it time to time, is that of new tech and AI and kind of futurism, that sort of stuff. I mean, we have done episodes in the past on ChatGPT and AI. I've had millions of conversations, not on the podcast, um, with all of you about... Uh, Potential of AI in terms of social disruption, jobs that might be in jeopardy, fake news, Terminators taking over the world, you name it. This is a topic that I have been interested in for a while, but ever since working with Glenn Beck and Justin on Dark Future, it's become a topic that I'm incredibly invested in. Well, ChatGPT, as we've covered in the past, uh, there's, there you go, Jim, is just scratching the surface. There is a bunch of competing programs, AIs out there that do word generation and other stuff kind of along those lines, whether it's ChatGPT, Google's Bard, Twitter's Grok, just to name a few. Then there are AI programs that generate images based on uh, nothing more than simple text prompts. This includes uh, OpenAI's DALI, Stable Diffusion, MidJourney, just to name a few. And some of these make just magnificent looking artwork, stuff that you couldn't even tell is is not real, uh, really wild stuff. But there has also been attempts to uh, use this technology to do the same for video. And nothing has really come out that would pass off as convincing until now. So OpenAI just released a new AI product called Sora. And it is mind-blowing, gentlemen, mind-blowing. So we're going to take a look at this. So on the screen, for those audio, uh, visual, you know, the people that are watching the video of this, you'll be able to see this. Audio-only listeners, you'll have to go to the link I have in the show notes, openai.com slash Sora. If we scroll through here, is this reacting to my scrolling, Jim? Yes, it is. All right. So this video that I have on the screen... Uh, The prompt was a stylish woman walks down a Tokyo street filled with warm, glowing neon and animated city signage. She wears a black leather jacket, a long red dress, black boots, yada, 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 yada. And just by hitting in this prompt and hitting go, the AI algorithm generated this video. And to me, this looks basically 100% real. Like, I'm sure if I pulled out a magnifying glass and started zooming in, maybe there would be some things that look a little out of place, but this is just, just incredible. Um, <laughs> we go through a handful of these uh, examples. This is one of uh, woolly mammoths walking through the snow. Their feet look a little Barney-esque, but other than that, uh, you know, it's it's pretty fantastic. Um, here's another one that's like a, I don't know, an artur's look, like a like a like a like a director, uh, uh, you know, some type of trailer for some like artur movie or something like that. But again, it's just like an unbelievable realism that's in this. 
this is a like seemingly stock footage of Big Sur, like uh, you know, beach or whatever that you would be able to download for a handful of dollars if you wanted to use this as a stock imagery and like a film that you're making or something. This is not real. This is 100% AI generated based on a simple text prompt. And there's a whole bunch of these if you scroll through this website. This one right here is uh, his, the prompt is historical footage of California during the gold rush. Hmm. And this seriously looks like a drone is flying through a high production value movie set of you know 1800s california during the gold rush like it is unbelievable how good this looks so jim i want to go to you first on this i assume that this is some of the first imagery that you're seeing of of this text to video uh artificial intelligence at work uh what what are your first reactions Oh, my, my reaction is the same as Justin's reaction. I first learned about this by following Justin T. Haskins on <laughs> X, and uh, he had shared mm -hmm. this and he was blown away by it. And uh, frankly, I am too. I mean, if you think about, um, you know, watching that gold, gold rush thing there, uh, Donnie, you know, you and I both were fans of Westworld, at least until it kind of went off the rails, but we won't get into that. Okay. Uh, it, it, the, so when I saw that, that clip right there, I'm thinking, you know, th there's movies that come out today from the Marvel Universe. Madam Web just came out and, and the CGI is garbage. The whole movie is is, is a disaster. Um, and, you know, we, we watch a lot of channels to talk about movies, especially movies, but a lot of um, computer generated special effects. And often it will be stated that the special effects that the CGI for the original Jurassic Park, which was 1993, they were working on those computers of circa 1992 to make that movie. And a lot of that CGI really holds up today. Mm -hmm. It looks a little dated, but it looks a lot better than some of the stuff we get right now. And so when I'm looking at this, I'm like, gosh, people, you, people for just a few bucks will be able to create their own basically CGI special effects and put it into right. their own movies, um, do whatever they want with it. But uh, I think, Justin, your concern was that um, it will be very soon almost impossible for regular people to know the difference between something that is computer generated in video and something that is actually real. I mean, there's the, there are a few cues that, um, you know, the brain will notice. Um, Red Letter Media, one of our favorite uh, pop culture channels, Donnie, uh -huh. um, one of their characters, Mr. Plinkett, he will say things, and this is really a, quite a brilliant observation. He says, you might not have noticed it, but your brain did. And right. it's, your brain will notice if something's just a little off, you know, the so-called uncanny valley. That that uncanny valley is becoming a plane. <laughs> I mean, right. it's 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 getting so close that it, your brain usually does pick up on something that isn't real, but it's becoming a lot harder to do that now. And some of these videos are absolutely spectacular. And the fact that this is just the beginning, this is the first we've ever seen of it. It's mm -hmm. frankly mind blowing. Yeah. I mean, Justin, I, I think that, uh, you know, anyone looking at some of this could have, well, first off, like, let me just say, cause I just don't want to be like completely negative when it comes to technology or whatever. Like this is fascinating. And the things that people are going to be able to do with this technology are going to, is going to blow our minds in the future to say the least, but there with that comes certain concerns, right? I think a lot of people can look at this and wonder how it's going to impact movie production or, you know, people that uh, produce stock footage stuff or just general content creation. So where does your mind go first when, uh, when you see this sort of technology being released? 
Yeah. So my, my whole thing is, uh, so on the entertainment side of things and on the creativity side, I think the world has been moving in a very long, for a very long time uh, in the direction of uh, individual people having increasingly more power to express their voices and their opinions and communicate with others in interesting and, and uh, creative ways. It, it started out, you know, in the 1990s with sort of the advent of, of personal computers in people's homes um, being really, you know, the really good versions of that started in the 1990s and then the Internet shortly after that. And it's only grown more and more and more. The, the power of that has yet to reach certain levels. Like anyone can can write today and, and publish it today to the world. Like ev anyone can do that. Um, but not anyone can make, you know, a CGI movie, you know, like that's not something everyone can do. And as this technology improves, it's going to make those kinds of things accessible to regular people. And, you know, and, um, that has the power to unleash a wave of creativity that will, I think, be very good for society in a lot of ways because so much of what we see today in entertainment and elsewhere is centralized. It's a handful of big companies deciding what everybody's going to see and experience and learn. How often do conservatives complain about how Hollywood is all run by leftists, you know, and whatever. Well, it's like that in, in 20 years, that's probably not going to matter because you're going to have just some really creative people. Maybe three people will be able to create a full blown movie, you know, that will look just as good as movies from say 2008, you know, and they're going to be able to do it from their homes and it's mm -hmm. going to have, you know, the messaging and values and stuff that we appreciate. So I think all of that is great. Like, the, just just like I think that the the ability for citizen journalism and that kind of thing and people expressing their opinions can be really good. Where I'm terrified is Jim already alluded to this. I mentioned this on my on my ex account. What terrifies me is how will we know what is real and what is not real once this technology reaches a point where you just can't tell the difference? How are we going to be able to make that distinction? And what is the result of that? We right. already have. We already we've talked about this on this podcast a million times. We already live in in this country in two different universes. Okay? A lot of us do. The universe that the that people who live on CNN, that universe where they live, that is not my universe. I don't live in their universe. The things that they think are ironclad facts about the world, I don't think are ironclad facts about the world. And things that I know about that happen like in the news like they've never even heard of <laughs> sure. like, you know, various things about Hunter Biden, for example, and stuff like they've never even heard of that stuff. Right. And so we live in different universes, but can you imagine what that's going to be like once you can start shaping reality and experiences in a way that it, the, the, what you see on the internet of a, a video of Joe Biden saying something, you know, right. uh, how will I know if that's true or not? If a video came out, uh, assuming this technology, even at the stage that it's at right now, but may maybe it, let's assume it's a little bit better than it is right now. And a video of Joe, Joe Biden came out tomorrow talking about just, just 
you know, a blast. It's like a, a one of these things where it's somebody maybe recorded it on their phone or on like a little camera or something. Mm-hmm, and the yeah. quality isn't necessarily great, but you could tell that it's him. And it's right. him just saying horribly, horribly, horribly racist stuff about Jews. Like, let's just say that that that, you, that came out tomorrow. OK, it would not shock me if that was real. It just mm-hmm. wouldn't because of of the whole bunch because I don't think he's lost his mind is the main reason to be totally honest. It wouldn't shock me. I don't think he hates Jews, but do I think he's lost his mind? Yes. So it wouldn't shock me, but it also wouldn't shock me if that was generated by some sort of AI program to make it look like he's saying that he hates you. And how will we know? Right. And I think the knee jerk, the knee jerk reaction uh, to whether or not you think it's real or whether or not you think it's fake right off the bat is going to be dependent on which side of the aisle you currently are on. Right. So like a supporter of Joe Biden, like, no, that's fake. That can't be real. Right. Right. Well, and (laughs) think about some of the, and think about some of the political things that have come out um, prior to this even being a possibility. So like one of the examples was uh, two or two good examples are Mitt Romney, his big political uh, uh, mistake that he made when he was running for president Which was uh, the uh, the 49 percent comments that he made okay. or 48 percent or whatever it was where he said basically slightly less than half of the country pays for everybody else. Okay. Is what he was arguing, which statistically speaking is completely incorrect. It's more like the top 20% of society pays for everybody else, but that's a whole other point. Um, but that was the argument that he was saying. And he, and that was, you know, a big, th- th- that was labeled by the mainstream press as like this huge mistake that he's, you know, making half the country seem like they're just these takers and living in the welfare state or something as if that was the argument he was making. Hillary Clinton made a, a really big mistake. She called uh, basically all Republicans, the deplorables. Right. And that was a, that was a really big mistake. It made her seem even more heartless and, and it played really poorly in the Midwest and places like that, where she ended up losing a, a lot of states unsus- in a way that was very surprising. Um, and so there's great pictures of puppies on the screen. That's always good. And so um, I think that uh, if we lived in a world though, where those could have theoretically been generated, what would have stopped Hillary Clinton from, or or say Mitt Romney, especially Mitt Romney? Barack Obama had one where he talked about people clinging to their guns and religion that was in sort of a, a private setting as well. Because uh-huh. like, uh, I think Hillary's may not have been in a private setting, but, w- but in one of those private donor type settings, like Barack Obama or whatever, um, or Mitt Romney, what's to stop them from coming out and saying, no, that wasn't, I didn't say that. Like that was, uh, that, that's, uh, somebody made that up. That's AI generated. And how will you know if it is or isn't? And, and and then it just becomes a debate. Then you'll get all these experts on CNN saying, oh, yeah, no, that that was a that was fake. And, and then we'll find out three months later it wasn't, you know, right. And that comment, uh, you know, maybe AI could be used to make Kamala Harris deliver a brilliant speech. It's not that powerful yet. It's not that powerful. We can't <laughs> get there yet. It, they're working, They're working on it. On it. Uh, yeah, you know, so recently I've seen on Facebook, there's been a number of profiles that just share these AI generated images. And a lot of them have to do with like, they'll show like a little like 12 year old boy standing next to some like artwork that he created. And me knowing the technology is just like, that's fake. That is 100% AI generated. I can tell right off the bat that's fake. And I'll click on the comments. And this is probably why they keep feeding me these profiles or whatever but i'll click on the comments and 99 percent of the comments don't think it's fake they think it's real they're saying great job kid you're doing fantastic all that stuff right 
And then I was like, well, you know, so it's already past the point of being like too realistic for, for your average person when they're already like seeing this on Facebook and thinking that it's real. But then I started scrolling through and I found like this picture of like this ornate cake. And I was like, is that real? I'm not entirely sure. It, it might be real. It might not. And then I saw another picture on Facebook of like an award winning for uh, photograph of like a bear eating a salmon out of the river. And I'm like, I'm not sure that that's real. Like, I don't know anymore. Like, we're already getting to the point where I cannot discern what is a real image online and what isn't. And like recently, I saw an image of like a never before seen photos or something like that. Of uh, one of them was like Bill Clinton on like a surfboard with a few other like notable people around him. And that my first reaction was like, is that real or is that some AI generated thing? Because I'm not sure anymore, you know. And then, you know, to kind of go into the points that you were making, Justin, just like the imagery or video clips or throughout history that have like spurred political action or or something like that. I, like, I don't know, off the top of my head, like the Tiananmen Square thing or something like that. It's like, in the future, when something like that comes out, are we going to have to question whether or not it's real? And now with video, like this is a powerful weapon in the information war. Like it's very, very powerful. Uh, Jim, this is this is not our main topic, but just any final thoughts on any of this stuff uh, before we move on? No, I mean, we, we spent enough time on it and we didn't really get into uh, the bias that's um, that, that is implicit in a lot of these things, uh, not necessarily these video productions. But uh, kind of hitting the hitting the Twitterverse or the Xverse, I guess we should call it now. Uh, the last couple of days is how Google has a new AI generator or uh, artificial intelligence image generator. And again, it's like all these things are text based, and you put in text and you ask it to create an image for you. And what's what they've discovered is that well, all, all AI is. I mean, it it's it does it supposedly learns and it scans the whole internet and. Uh, presents results to you, but it's still generated by human being, human programmers. And then the managers of those programmers who, of course, uh, inject their own biases into whatever results the AI will end up with. And so if you just look around on Twitter, I guess if you put in uh, Google AI in the search bar or uh, Google Gemini, you'll see people sharing their results when they asked uh, Google Gemini to produce something, an image for them. For instance, they would put things like, uh, show me, um, create an image of Vikings. And then the Vikings, some of the Vikings that would come back would be black or Asian. And it's very unlikely that there were very many dark skinned uh, Vikings back in the, um, you know, 1000s. And so the, the guy would type into the prompt and say, you know, that that doesn't seem right. And so they would have a conversation. God, this is crazy. We're even talking like this. But he was having a conversation with the AI trying to get it to explain, why would you present um, to me black Vikings? There were no black Vikings. And AI answers that its default is to inject as much diversity as possible into its search results. And so people asked for pictures. For instance, I just saw this one this morning. It asked for pictures of the founding fathers. And when you specifically asked for that, it would show you, it would create a, an image of, or, of George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, John Adams, things like that. But if you prompted it to not have anybody specific in there, but just show a uh, general image of the founding fathers, it presented uh, pictures of 
people in 16th century clothing, uh, you know, in, in, uh, you know, around a table that included some diversity in it, as you would see in today's modern media. Um, obviously, all the founding fathers, they were not racially diverse. You may not like that, but it happens to be the, the case. Yet AI is, is kind of programmed, at least Google's AI, to, to give you as, as much diversity, physical, superficial, racial diversity as possible. And while that's kind of funny now, it does pretend something kind of troubling for the future in that I think in another generation, um, I may be very old or perhaps I have passed on, but it could be the case that future generations of Americans are using AI and AI is basically just reforming society. This is like the, 19, the book 1984, when there's nobody left around that knows what actually happened in history, then AI and those who create AI and they, everything is controlled by the left, history just may be forgotten. And people may believe things about this country, about the history of the world, that aren't true, but that narrative makers want to be true in order to form what they consider a more perfect society. So that's the kind of thing a little bit longer term that uh, I get a little bit concerned about. Actually, I get more concerned about it every time I think about it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think I, I've made this prediction before. I don't know if I've made it on air here, but uh, I truly believe that the October surprise leading into the 2024 election this year is going to be something AI generated, some sort of deep fake uh, audio clone, something like that, either uh, either at uh, you know Trump's expense or something along those lines. I I'm, I feel pretty confident in that. We've, I've been monitoring certain election things going on around the world, and there's already been examples of this happening lately. Uh, not even just ones that I've talked about in previous episodes of this, but newer things that are going on. So I feel like that is going to happen. So keep your eyes peeled for that. And gosh, seriously, like you can't trust anything that you see anymore. It's not even Jim. That's a that's a deep fake of actually it's a deep fake of Justin. And you could tell it's off because it's got a beard. Go ahead, Justin. Yeah, that's true. That's probably accurate. Um, well, I think that um, to, to just really quickly um sort of expand on what Jim said um, in the example that we've given in this episode of open AI and this Sora text to video generator, when they released it, they um, made a statement that said very, very short statement. And it said, this we'll be taking several important safety steps ahead of making Sora available in open AI's products. So right now it hasn't been released to the public yet. It's just been designed and they're just getting it ready. So before they get it ready, they're going to do, they're going to put some safety steps in place. And this is what it, it says. We are working with red teamers, meaning experts, domain experts in areas like misinformation, hateful content and bias who are adversarially testing the model in order to make sure that it's designed in line with, you know, what they think is going to be an appropriate result. Right now, you know, in one sense, like I could imagine that if I was designing an AI uh, text to video generator, I would want it to have some of that as well. Like I wouldn't want people creating an AI video of us, uh, like some person beheading another person, right? Like, obviously you don't want that, right? But we all know when they use the words, 
misinformation and bias and things like that, that they aren't talking about just the most radical, extreme, craziest examples. They're talking about things that are, you know, just regular views that people on the right have about all sorts of different things. And they're built, they're, they're admitting that they're building this as what they call safety features into the design of their technology. And in the book, that Donald referenced earlier and Jim pointed to on a shelf there, Dark Future, we have tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of sources and data and examples of and statements from people at major tech companies all over the world, but especially here in America, saying exactly that, saying on XYZ technology, we have to design it so that it's this way, this way, this way, this way, and this way. And they often use political examples. Um, one of my favorites was uh, one person who's like a metaverse expert talking about how they got to make sure the metaverse is designed correctly, uh, said that if we don't design it correctly, we could end up with another January 6th type thing on our hands, except inside of the metaverse. Oh, no. So we, we can't allow a metaverse <laughs> version of January 6th. We got we to gotta design it so that's not possible. Well, so you see how the more your reality, the more your life exists inside of a space where it is centrally controlled and mostly centrally controlled by institutions of people with whom conservatives do not agree on much, the more you are sacrificing your freedom in order to partake in that universe that they are building. They are literally building their utopian societies through the internet and these emerging technologies. And they're building the rules. We're not building the rules. And, and that, and, and the more younger people, especially future generations, put their lives in those kinds of worlds, the more they're going to be subject to them and shaped by them. And that's really the, the terrifying thing, because how do you, how do you avoid that? There are no conservative there AI companies out there that are the big boys, you know, and that's, that's a, we saw the social media, how problematic that could be. Right. It's going to be a problem with other things as well going forward. Yeah, no, there's just, there's so much. I mean, just in the last couple of weeks, I've seen uh, like a fake ad with Julia Roberts talking about like a giveaway for laptops. It's completely fake. It's all deep fake. It's all AI generated. It's not real. It's a scam. Um, David Hogg on, on Twitter was promoting Ooh. this idea of using AI generated voices of, of victims of gun shootings or, or firearm, whatever, violence. To have these AI generated victims voices call elected officials to basically say that we need to do something about gun violence. So like this stuff is spreading far and wide. Uh, so again, just be very, very skeptical. Even if like your 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 nephew calls you on the phone and says, my car broke down on the side of the road. I need 50 bucks. Like you better have a code word to make sure that's a real person on the other end of that phone call. Sounds ridiculous, but that's the world that we're getting into now. All right. We're half hour into the show. We got to get to our main topic. Um, so, Justin, this actually comes from an article that you wrote that I assume is published. I'm not I don't know waiting it's for. OK, it's probably published. I don't know. <laughs> But it has to do with George. It's going to be George published Soros. by the by the Blaze at yes, some point, probably during this episode. But uh, and how he is seemingly trying to seize control of even more media domains here. So uh, just reading from your maybe unpublished article, giving people a sneak peek. It's published. Says, uh, Look, it's up on screen, right? 
Is that it? There it is. Yep. Uh, Soros Fund Manager Management, SMF, an investment company controlled by left-wing billionaire George Soros, is reportedly on the verge of taking a controlling interest in Odyssey, the second largest radio broadcaster in America. Only iHeartRadio owns more radio stations. Odyssey, which has amassed $1.9 billion in debt, filed for bankruptcy in January. Soros Management Fund has bought $400 million of that debt. So SMF now controls about 40% of Odyssey's senior debt, which means Soros's fund is now well-positioned to be the radio giant's largest shareholder once bankruptcy proceedings conclude. Odyssey owns more than 220 radio stations uh, uh, nationwide, including news and talk radio stations in major markets, such as New York City, Chicago, and Los Angeles. Perhaps most importantly, Odyssey owns talk radio stations in high-profile markets in election swing states, including KDWNAM in Las Vegas, WPHTAM in Philadelphia, and KDKAAM in Pittsburgh. Many of America's leading conservative voices currently have shows airing on Odyssey-owned networks, including Mark Levin, Dana Lash, Bill, uh, Brian Kilmeade, and Sean Hannity. With Soros at the helm of this company, who knows how long that will last. The move is a troubling sign that Soros is planning to exert substantial influence on important broadcast radio markets in the months leading up to the 2024 election. Justin, this seems like an interesting move and perhaps even more interesting timing. Uh, do you want to tell us more about this story? Yeah, I mean, um, what's really interesting about it is... Um, this isn't the first time that George Soros has uh, been doing this kind of thing. Um, he's uh, also been purchasing. Uh, he, he purchased in 2022, I believe a Hispanic radio company um, uh, that is particularly influential in Florida um, with the sort of Cuban exile community in South Florida. Um, and so he's, and they had a, I think it was a nationwide thing, but that was one of the really big radio stations was based there. Um, and you know, conservative talk radio is like one of the few places where conservatives in the media space dominate, you know, I mean, obviously on uh, Fox news dominates cable television, but conservatives don't dominate television news generally. So only on the cable news side. But if you add CBS and ABC and NBC and all the liberal cable news networks, like Fox News doesn't even come close to matching them. If you look at print broadcast, print media, uh, still the New York Times and all those places are, you know, right at the top. If you look at digital websites, the vast majority of major news and opinion websites are run by liberals. Conservative talk radio, though, has been dominated by, I mean, talk radio has been dominated by conservatives forever, right. forever, right. for a very long time. And um, that's still true all across the country. If you look at the top 20 or so biggest radio shows in America, almost all of them are conservative. There's almost no exceptions. The ones that are except there, there are maybe a couple um, and then there are some that are kind of like more moderate, but even the moderates are right leaning moderates, you know? So it's, it's, you know, if the left could somehow take this over too, then they really <laughs> would have total control over almost everything. 
<laughs> I mean, yeah. they would be the primary dominant influencer in every single media space that you can think of. And, and so it is vital. And, and, and talk radio has been a source of, um, of it, it's the place where conservatives in a lot of ways learn about what's happening in the world. Cause it's long form media. It gets into the weeds of things in a way that you're not necessarily going to read like a five thousand word article on some website like you're not going to do that but you might listen to two hours of talk radio in the car mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so you know it, it's they're able to talk about things that you're just not getting in a two-minute news clip on fox news or you're not getting on the blaze tv or whatever you're getting it in long fashion and and that and there's tons of money in it too because the money and this is a this is sort of an underrated part of all this is that a lot of these conservative personalities who have big radio shows use the money they get from the radio shows to finance other things that they're doing in the conservative media space. And so if that money dries up, it's not just going to impact radio. It's going to impact everything else mm, that it touches, mm. you know, um, like D Donald and I are, uh, you know, in tight with Glenn Beck, right. We work with him, all these books and all this stuff. Like a lot of that is built on radio. The success that he has on radio f is, used for every other kind of product that they do the books the websites the videos everything so i think george soros or whoever's running soros fund management man or whatever it's called at this point in time um i think they know this they've known this for a long time and the big talk radio giants are not just going to come out and sell their shows and you're not going to get the networks just selling themselves right so what soros did is he waited for one of them to go bankrupt and started buying the debt. That's the easiest way to take it over. And so I think this is extremely, right. extremely problematic and troubling. Yeah, I mean, Jim, uh, I know that George Soros is a central character of a lot of conspiracy theories, um, conspiracy theory related accusations, I'll say. But you don't have to put on too much tinfoil uh, on, on your head to know that he is a far, far, far left activist type. Uh, but worse, he is a far, far, far left activist type with the money and the power and the influence to make changes in the country that reflect his worldviews. So uh, just briefly, again, reading from Justin's article, it says, for more than 30 years, Soros has had an immense impact on the political and social causes in the United States. The Soros-funded Open Society Foundations has spent more than $21 billion over the past three decades. In 2022 alone, it spent $1.3 million, a uh, billion dollars, sorry. Most of that cash went to left-wing causes and organizations, including Media Matters, Planned Parenthood, and the radical climate advocacy group, the Sunrise Movement. Uh, through state registered political action committees, Soros has helped radical soft on crime district attorneys get elected in key local elections, contributing to the rising urban crime rates. That alone is a topic that we could do an entire episode on because there are dozens of candidates across the United States that have direct funding from George Soros groups and all of that, uh, DAs and all of that. But I mean, Jim, surely this move into radio. That's, that doesn't have any political motivations, right? I'm sure Soros is just diversity, diversifying his asset holdings of his empire, you know, because because radio is a growing industry, right? So it's it's purely just just financial, correct? Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, as as uh, as Justin pointed out, you know, the talk radio has been dominated by the right for 
uh, going on 30, 40 years now. I mean, I'm the old man of this podcast, but I remember when I was a college student at the University of Pittsburgh, um, I was delivering pizza to help pay rent um, while, while going to school. And I remember being in my little 1982 Chevy Chevette uh, delivering pizzas uh, through the urban landscape of Pittsburgh. And I discovered on a Saturday afternoon, this guy talking on the radio, um, it was only played on weekends, by the name of Rush Limbaugh. And it was very interesting. And obviously, Rush Limbaugh, this was in, I guess this would have been in like 1988 or 89. He'd only recently had nationally syndicated his show. And he would go on to absolutely transform AM radio and almost single-handedly create a multi-billion dollar industry. Uh, I had shared on the screen there when you guys were talking earlier, I looked it up. Um, I, I'm a, I've been a talk radio fan my whole life. Um, I, I love it. Um, but now I actually, I listen to very little radio. I listen to mostly podcasts, but a lot of the guys that I listen to have radio shows, but I listen to their podcasts. So I'll probably not do them any favors by uh, listening on demand on a podcast. But, uh, you know, I was scrolling through talkers magazines. They, they release a list. They release a list every year called the heavy 100. And as I was scrolling down there in the first 25, um, Justin probably knows a lot of those people that were on screen. Uh, I think three of the top 15 or 20 were not uh, on the right. We're not conservatives. Uh, Dave Ramsey was number two. He's, he does a finance show, has no politics whatsoever. So you just throw him out. I think the first non-conservative radio host that was on there, uh, one of them was Tom Hartman. Um, and, uh, mm. uh, and although he's probably getting graded on a curve, they probably call it, consider him more influential and more heavy in the heavy 100 because there are so few successful left-leaning uh, radio shows, radio talk shows. And there's a very good reason for that. As Rush Limbaugh used to say on the air, he is equal time. And one of the things that made talk radio um, actually even exist was getting rid of the so-called fairness doctrine, which happened during uh, the second term, I believe, of Ronald Reagan, in which radio shows or all broadcasters were reluctant to even get into any political discussion or policy discussion because the federal federal law required equal time for quote unquote the other side. Mm -hmm. Once the fa the, so the so called fairness doctrine was um, gotten rid of by the FCC under Ronald Reagan, all you know, then you could talk about whatever you wanted, and in fact, the market determined. What kind of talk was the most interesting? What was the kind of talk shows that advertisers were going to make more money on, et cetera? And the rise of conservative radio began and actually and really exploded into what is a multi-billion dollar industry today. Um, and it succeeded because it was the only alternative voice to leftist indoctrination in all other forms of media, be it your news, your local, your, even your local newspaper or national newspapers like the, like the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. All of the networks, all of the cable, uh, all the cable news as well, with the exception of Fox News, which decided Roger Ailes decided on a radical business plan. Let's try to cater to half of the country that nobody talks to. And so now we come to this where I, I think talk radio is probably uh, terrestrial radio. I shouldn't even say talk radio. I think the technology is making terrestrial radio a little less relevant for a lot of Americans. I still think it's a very powerful medium, obviously, and it's the only broadcast medium in which non-leftist voices have had any chance at all to get their message out. And George Soros now basically buying, um, uh, I, I keep wanting to say audacity, 
Odyssey uh -huh. as um, at a bargain basement price because they're bankrupt. Right. The idea that George Soros would take Mark Levin off off of the biggest stations in the country, or Sean Hannity, or Dana Lash, or all of these these um, all of these shows that are very successful have enormous audiences of many many millions across the country. Could George Soros decide to take all of those shows off of his radio stations? He could. Those radio stations would lose a lot of money. A lot of the people that work at those radio stations that are not Mark Levin, obviously, he's he's syndicated on hundreds of stations across the country. The business, those those radio stations would start to lose a lot of money. The people who work for those radio stations would lose their jobs. But George Soros has uh, enough money that none of that is, needs to necessarily even be a factor in his decision. So yeah, he could have an enormous impact on this election by taking those people off the air. I think it's right. extremely unlikely. Well, I shouldn't say that. Let me back up. I think it's maybe a 50-50 chance. I mean, uh, George Soros doesn't need to make money. He poured, how many, Justin, how many hundreds of millions did he pour to try to affect the 2020 election in all sorts of different right. ways and through different sh shell corporations and dark money foundations and all this stuff, hundreds of millions of dollars from George Soros went to affect the 2020 election. Mark sure. Zuckerberg spent hundreds of millions of dollars to affect the 2020 election. So the idea that George Soros would just basically tell Mark Levin, I'm going to cut your audience in half because I think it's important because I have, I have a vision for the country that is not yours and is not, frankly, what half the country thinks of America, and I'm going to transform it. And so I'm going to take you off the air. That's possible. You know, it used to be, it used to be troublesome to a lot of people on the left when too much media power was conglomerated into one person's hands. Mm -hmm. I don't think they give a, give a crap about that anymore because their guy has all the money. And now he's got about, you know, a couple hundred radio stations in his pocket. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I, this, and this isn't even, you know, like this is just part of it. This is like the, the, the top of the iceberg of like George Soros and all of this different media moves to, to kind of buy up media uh, last summer, a fund linked to Soros joined a consortium of former lenders who paid $350 million for bankrupt Vice Media, an outlet that at its peak was once valued at $6 billion. So he got that for a steal. In 2022, the Latino Media Network, with the backing of Soros Fund Management, purchased 18 Spanish-language radio stations for $60 million. Among the stations included in the deal was Radio Mumbai, a popular conservative anti-communism talk radio station in Miami that has close ties to Cuban exile community in South Florida. Uh, last year, a report came out from the Media Research Center showing that Soros spent $131 million to influence media groups around the world between the years 2016 and 2020. This includes the bankrolling of 253 separate groups to influence the media, Media Research Center actually did three uh, three part series on George Soros and his influence in the media. The third part of the series highlights the Soros tied figures linked to major media. It says uh, Soros Foundation dollars fanned out to a web of nonprofits, many of which are connected to figures with high profile roles in major media organizations. And they gave like a um, kind of like the top ten list. I won't list off all of them, but just to name a few. Lester Hold from NBC Nightly News. He's a member of the Committee to Protect Journalists. Uh, uh, he's a board of directors. He's a board of directors uh, member. Uh, Christine, Christiane Amanpour, CNN, senior advisor to the Committee to Protect Journalists. 
Margaret Brennan, CBS Face the Nation. She's a Council on Foreign Relations uh, board member. Uh, Fareed Zakaria, CNN, Council on Foreign Relations board member. Sally Busby, Washington Post, uh, NPR, PolitiFact, Associated Press, Reuters. They're... They're all got some connections, the good old George Soros. And it wow, says there's a lot, there's a lot of ideological diversity in that big list you just <laughs> went right. off. Good grief. Uh, in, in this report, it says the, the media influence and ties that Soros bought was enough to insulate him from being seriously investigated by most journalists. Whenever a conservative critic dared to raise any objections to Soros's funding, uh, uh, sorry, spending and major political footprint, the liberal media worked overtime to characterize those critics as anti-Semites, as Bongino report content manager Matt Palumbo told uh, MRC Business in an exclusive interview. But mostly what Soros buys is silence. And that is something that, that we have seen before, where it's like you just mentioned the idea of George Soros and, oh, you're just written off as some crazy conspiracy theory, whatever. But it's just like, you know, it, like the left for so long is always talking about dark money and the, the influence of money and shaping the elections and all this stuff. But, you know, like Jim said, oh, when it's their guy doing it, crickets. So, Justin, what do you think about all this valid concern or wild conspiracy theory? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously a, a valid concern. I mean, not just that he's influencing, you know, media. Um, that's that's a huge problem, but th that he's influencing almost everything. I mean, almost everything in some fashion is getting a little bit of, of the George Soros money uh, at the very least. Um, the Open Society Foundations, which is the... George Soros funded nonprofit that gives a lot of the money to political activists and nonprofit groups and journalists that are in the nonprofit space. Um, that's how Soros filled a lot of the Soros money goes through the open society foundations. They've given over $20 billion, $20 billion over the past uh, couple of decades, I believe if I remember right. Um, or three decades, and in la and it's been accelerating over over the past several years. In 2022 alone, he gave one that that organization gave 1.3 billion dollars just in 2022. 1.3 billion dollars. Now, as we we all have lots of experience working in the nonprofit you know space in public policy, and we've worked with a lot of political activist type groups and so like we have a lot of familiarity with that 1.3 billion dollars can buy a lot of organizations <laughs> in the think tank world you don't need you don't need to it doesn't take that much to do sure. that if you if you you could fund them and by buy them i just mean to fund them to keep them going to keep them operating right to have 1.3 billion dollars i mean you could easily i mean we're talking about uh you know, maybe hundreds of organizations you could fund with that money. Hundreds with with hundreds of thousands of, of employees, potentially. I mean, certainly tens of thousands, all of which are are, you know, spreading the word, reaching policymakers, grassroots movements, etc. Uh, the how do you even quantify that kind of impact that one organization is having if they have the ability to fund 
thousands of other organizations. It's just unreal. It's unreal. And when you compare that to what exists on the right, and this is something that I put in the article, um, obviously there are donors on the right that really care about the issues and that they give money to organizations, and that's great. But when you compare donors on the right to donors on the left, it just seems to me like we don't have anywhere near the kind of support on the right from big donors, despite the fact that we're constantly being characterized as people who are just bought and paid for by mm. big oil companies and stuff like that, which is super ironic because most of the big oil companies are really leftist organizations, if anything, or left-leaning organizations, a lot of them, when it comes to climate change and things like that. They're funding a lot of the other side on those issues now. Um, but, like, it's not even close. Even the Koch brothers, when they talk about the influence of the Koch brothers and how evil they are and whatever, um, the, the Koch brothers, are they, they give nothing in comparison to public sector unions. We're talking about political causes. Public sector unions are way bigger in terms of their political donations. People like George Soros and things like that. I mean, they dwarf what what the Koch brothers are capable of doing. And now one of the Koch brothers has passed away. So just Koch. Coke brother. I don't know which one is still remaining. Um, but like, there's just no comparison on the right. We don't have all of these billion, like tons of billionaires lining up to fund our causes. It just doesn't seem that way. There are some, but, but the left has way more money. They have way more influence in institutions. They have all of academia on their side. They have all of Hollywood on their side. They have most of the uh, digital media space. They have most of the print media space. They have almost all of the big newspapers, not quite all of them, almost all of the tele big television networks, not quite all of them. Uh, they control most of social media other than Twitter, you know, other than X, uh, th that's the only one they don't control. And they did control that all the way up until like two years ago or something like that. I mean, we, they control the, they control most of the servers that the internet are built on. The <laughs> right. banks are all now left-wing institutions. Like who, most of corporate America, all the big hedge funds, they've all gone into all in on ESG. All we have left is people <laughs> talking on the radio and they're trying to take that away from us too. Can we have something? Can we just yeah. have one thing, you yeah. know, one space where it's a safe space for us? Can we have that? No, <laughs> no, it's, it's unbelievable. You, you you can't have it. We, totalitarian mindsets cannot cannot <laughs> handle even the tiniest, smallest, weakest, quiet voice anywhere questioning their authority. That's what this has always been about. I mean, that's what the, the, the climate change debate is about, because they to the left, there isn't a debate. Um, and on on what's right, you know, what, what they think the direction of the country should be, there isn't there will be no debate if they can help it. Yeah, we're going to have to resort to uh, leaving leaving our political messaging uh, in cornfields like the aliens do or something like that. That's going to be the only <laughs> only venue that we can get our points across. By, by the way, uh, I'm just remembering this, you know, as scary as everything we've already talked about is. Um, the who was the woman who was high up in the Clinton campaign? Jim, you'll probably remember high up in the Clinton campaign who was married to Anthony Weiner and was oh, involved. Huma Abedin. Yeah. Huma Abedin is now uh, dating uh, George, George Soros, Soros. son. Oh, okay, George son. Soros, son. 
She's in with the Soros family. Great. So, I mean, it's, it's just like as if you couldn't get. That's a power couple. <laughs> it's unbelievable, man. It's unbelievable. And oh, so, and Huma Abedin and Anthony Weiner were uh, caught up in the whole um, Hillary Clinton laptop cover up scandals and the emails servers and all of that, because a lot of their emails got put into that whole thing, but it was just, uh, it's just unbelievable. It's just unbelievable how well connected and well financed this whole thing is. Uh, when we were doing the ESG, you know, we're still doing the ESG thing. That's never going away. It seems, but, um, you know, we used to talk all the time when you add up all the money behind all the institutions, assets under management who have gone all in on ESG, it's like a hundred trillion dollars. You know, it's like, how do you even, you can't even wrap your mind around that kind of money. And so, you know, what, what we need is we need the people that do have money on the right. I'm not a billionaire, but if I was a billionaire, I'd like to believe I would be the George Soros, you know, maybe a more attractive, younger George Soros <laughs> um, on of the right. Like, I, like we need more of those kinds of people to step right. up and say, no, we're not just going to allow George Soros to buy out talk radio. We're not going to allow every media institution in the universe to just become left-wing mouthpieces. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and we're not going to allow the think tank space and all that to be dominated by the left too. We're going to, we're going to put our money where our mouths are. And I just don't see that unfortunately happening. There are people doing it. I'm not trying to say there's no one there are, but there are a lot of people who are on our side of most of these issues who don't do anything for us. Right. And I think that's extremely, we're not going to survive if those people don't step up. I, I think it's just too hard. Uh, yeah, that was a quick hour, gentlemen. Uh, lots, lots to talk about. We even had some more topics that are going to be left on the cutting room floor, I think. Maybe we'll get to them next week. Actually, next week, I think we're going to be doing a special Trump deep state episode, uh, kind of laying out the timeline of all the things that went into undermining the Trump campaign starting from early 2016, running through his presidency and all of that. So if you're interested in that, make sure you tune in next week for that episode. Uh, but that's going to do it for this week. Thank you all for tuning into this episode of the In The Tank podcast. Join us every week for a new episode. If you are listening to the show on iTunes, leave us a review. That'd be greatly appreciated. You could also join us live where we are live streaming on Thursday at noon central time on Facebook and YouTube and X and Rumble. You can join the conversation, throw your comments and questions in the chat. Maybe we'll show your comments on the screen. Maybe we'll address your questions on the fly. Super chat functionality is enabled. You can also support the show just by hitting that like button, sharing this content, subscribing if you haven't already, or leaving a comment under the video. All helps break through those big tech algorithms that prevent content like this from being shown to more people. If you'd like, you can follow us on X at In The Tank Pod, or you can send us your comments, suggestions, or questions to the show by emailing us at inthetankpodcast at gmail.com. Jim Lakely, where can the fine people find you? At Jay Lakely on Twitter, at Heartland Inst on Twitter, and always visit heartland.org. Fantastic. Justin Haskins, same question. At Justin T. Haskins on uh, Twitter and Facebook and everywhere else where they still allow conservatives to speak. Fantastic. All right. Thank you all for tuning in. We will talk to you next week. <laughs>